Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning, everybody. I'm Patrick Martins. This is a live edition of the main course. Um, it's uh, an honor to have uh, Tony Butler uh, sitting in with us. Anthony Butler, the executive director of Bread and Life. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Patrick. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Um, thank you so much. Uh, well, it's. Uh, I'll just do a really brief introduction. Uh, we are sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Son. Sam Edwards. What a guy. He buys so many hams from us he helps us so much he helps our network of farms um so a salute to sam who i just had a lovely dinner with at union square cafe because they're big supporters of us wallace edwards and sons and um hey joe are you there how's it going joe things are going good patrick Good, Thanks good. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. Well, I just came off a really big week. Uh, we had, uh, I was honored to be invited to speak at the James Beard's and, uh, third annual conference at the Hearst Tower on the 44th floor. So, A, it was fun to be uh, in the Hearst Tower because, of course, they helped found this network and they help us buy these two shipping containers. Uh, Mitchell Davis, who has a fantastic show on this network called Taste Matters, invited me to talk about you know the importance of traceability and um, you know knowing where your source is so it was really an honor to speak um, it had come just off the New York Sunday Times magazine food section so there was like 350 people there and um, you know it was a really uh, energetic crowd and uh, I had the opportunity uh, in a panel moderated by the very very charismatic and knowledgeable Corby Cummer who's one of the editors at the Atlantic Monthly. He was the moderator, and he gave me a chance to talk about Heritage Foods USA, which was uh, really an honor to talk in front of all those people. And I got a chance to talk about restaurant-supported agriculture because, of course, you know people know about community-supported agriculture, but restaurant-supported agriculture is a very, very important uh, component, and we're going to bring that up also with Tony in a few minutes, the importance of restaurants you know, to you know, helping feed people, helping feed farmers even, um, you know, because we sell to Heritage Foods, of course, is the company I started. It, it sells to about 200 restaurants every single week, 52 weeks a year. And uh, restaurants are really a part of that. Um, they understand that the farmers are completely 100% entwined with you know, the destinies of those restaurants and their ability to pay on time and their ability to stay consistent on the cuts because, of course, we cut up all the animals and, uh, you know, we try to be just like Cisco, <laughs> but using all rare and heritage breeds. So, um, you know, I, I actually shout out to um, at the event to Michael Anthony from Gramercy Tavern, who will literally put extra effort. I mean, he will always take his order. 
Even if he doesn't really need it, he will find a way to use the whole shoulders or the ten rib racks, be it to feed the staff or be it to make a donation. He will actually, you know, really understand that, you know, there's an entire network behind his purchase and likewise across the 250 restaurants. Um that we sell to across the country. And I was brought in to talk about who you can trust. And uh, of course, I think, you know, you should trust experts. You know, labels can often be spin. There's a lot of spin behind terms and labels and marketing and signage. But chefs, great chefs, they can determine quality. And, uh, you know, I encourage all the listeners to keep going back to good restaurants because everyone's always trying a new restaurant and then their favorite restaurant that they like the best, they might not go to but once or twice a year when in reality it could be, you know, once every couple of weeks. You go, you have a drink, you have an appetizer, but it's important to support chefs that you like. Of course, merchants or another group of people you can trust. I consider myself a merchant. Actually, everyone almost laughed me off the stage because I put myself in the same ranking as the Medici's and the Rothschilds of Marco Polo. And they were like, listen, buddy, you're not that important. I was like, well, all I did is go to Kansas. It's not uh, not so so impressive as those guys. But in the third person, you know, because I'm in meats as the butcher. In my book, I have a uh, section called Sleep With Your Butcher. Uh, you know, get to know your butcher, support your same butcher, because, you know, he is a real intermediary between you and your food. Um, and then I also got, for the first time ever, I started a little Twitter explosion. Someone asked about uh, why everyone talks about gastronomy. And uh, I was like, well, you know, people talk about gastronomy, but very few people talk about the other side of gastronomy, which is where does the food come from? And, uh, you know, I used as an example, you know, the food channel, but, you know, I hate to say it because, of course, I love the newspaper, but the food section in particular, the New York Times, about Bon Appetit, food and wine, I mean, just go down the list. I mean, it sounds outrageous. People are going to think I'm exaggerating, and I am prone to exaggeration, but I literally think zero percent of their time or space is put towards the eco side, the the serious side of where the food comes from. Now, zero is an unacceptable number. I mean, the Food Channel has not had, but it's never had a single minute of serious coverage of any of the important issues. And then pick your issue. I mean, worker wages, pesticides, uh, antibiotics in the food. I mean, just go on and on and on. Of course, they have sponsors that they need to stay true to. But, uh, I mean... 0% in 20 years, 24 hours a day of programming is a little outrageous. So it was uh, funny to see everyone just get on their phones uh, at the event while I said that. And uh, it did cause uh, quite a stir. And uh, hopefully the Food Channel will give serious issues, I don't know, a Sunday morning slot at 6, 6 a.m. Um, but we also talked about gastronomy, and this is going to lead into Tony Butler. Gastronomy is a very important thing. How can you tell that something's good? Because um, it tastes good. Um, and that has really very little to do with local. I mean, it can have something to do with local, but they're not necessarily connected. Gastronomy is its own science, just like sociology or anthropology or psychology. Um, and so gastronomy is not necessarily local, and it's definitely not elitist because poor people have taste buds too. And they deserve the best. And uh, I have tremendous respect for Tony Butler for bringing gastronomy and the highest level local and national foods, but mainly local, uh, to 
basically one of the poorest segment of American society. So uh, talk about this local program and, and how you help bring the best food in the country to the poorest people. It, it's a, a great introduction, Patrick. Um, we do try to do that because I don't think food is elitist. Um, Patrick and I were discussing earlier before we went on the air that I knew nothing of the of this uh, food world and emergency food world um, prior to entering this job at, at Bread and Life, which is one of the largest emergency food providers in the city, the largest in Brooklyn, uh, providing over 600,000 meals a, a year. And I've been so, I would say, in awe or impressed with this food community, the food community of merchants who, who purvey the food, the food community of farmers, the food community of the restaurateurs, the chefs, who have both taught me the importance of this and also have worked together with us. Um, because I remember speaking you know, a couple years back that the food community does a wonderful job of bringing food to people with means, bringing wonderful food. And I felt they had an obligation to help folks who had lesser means or without means. And they've responded um, tenfold with that. Um, and it's been very exciting for me. Um, uh, you talk about the, the kind of gastronomy and then the, uh, your... Uh, kind of dig at the food channel uh, where they're really ignoring where all the food comes from. At Bread and Life um, in Bed-Stuy, where we're located, we, um, out of our $700,000 food budget um, that we procure each year, we spend about uh, 250,000 of that's all procured from New York State farmers. Hmm. So it's very important for us to to bring local food um, on several levels. One, to to put money back in the economy. To put money back in the economy. Um, We are funded... Um, almost completely privately. We're 91% privately funded and 9% uh, uh, government funded. And I feel I have an obligation to be the best steward I can of that money. So to place it back into the community. Um, We work to help folks sort of experience and see other types of food, back to that kind of gastronomy argument, to taste things they haven't tasted before. One of the, I think the craziest things in this country is that in the communities that suffer the most from hunger, they have the highest rates of obesity and the highest rates of hypertension, hmm. um, which just seems almost counterintuitive. Right. Um, just anecdotally, we have a, a client of ours who's participated in our cooking classes with, um, um, particularly with Katie Kiefer, who I know is a host here on Heritage Radio. Straight No Chaser. Um, and, um, and several other cooking classes. And then experiencing the food we've served in the soup kitchen, um, he has lost 45 pounds brought his diabetes under control and he ascribes that to learning other foods that he didn't have to eat processed foods that he didn't have to live on macaroni and cheese and pizza mm-hmm. his entire time and learning how and he's also been able to procure more food because buying if you will non-processed foods and fresh foods from the supermarket is a cheaper endeavor no it actually is cheaper that's so interesting so just to contextualize uh, before we get into you know the issues of the moment and your project for mm-hmm. november um how does bread and life work um, for the customer, for sure. instance? Bread and Life um, is a 30-year-old emergency food provider. Um, we have a quote-unquote soup kitchen, which is a hot meal program that uh, does approximately 1,200 meals a day. Mm-hmm. We also have a food pantry uh, that uh, distributes uh, another 1,000 meals a day. So, so we're running 2,200. around 2,200 meals a day, five days a week. And that is for fam- 2,200 families or individuals? Individuals and families. Okay. Um, the way it works, mostly it's single folks who use our, our hot meal program on site um, and our food pantries, which people take home groceries, is mostly families. Um, we also provide an array of other services because we believe that the food is only just the emergency response to this hunger crisis. Um, we provide on-site food stamp applications. We provide 
on-site Medicaid applications. We have free tax pro, uh, preparation for folks. We have legal assistance for folks, housing assistance for folks, free medical assistance. We have a library. We have um, kind of an internet cafe to allow people to, um, to access uh, that world, um, provide advocacy, um, because I think another thing that folks have to do is, is kind of take charge of their issues, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a community action board that's that's met with their congressmen, met with their senators, um, and to, to impact on those needs and those uh, issues that they seem uh, valuable. Now, taking action is an interesting thing because, of course, uh, people are like, well, poor people, they don't take action. They mm. just take services. Mm. But you make an interesting observation yeah. that most of these, many of these people are employed. Particularly in our food pantry, many are employed. Um, I think what folks don't recognize is that hunger is really an issue of poverty. It's really an issue of skewed. It's really an issue of, uh, no, among families, no real wage growth since 1973. Um, we've really just created two incomes to provide what used one income used to provide in, in 1973. So folks are really struggling. Here in New York City, the housing costs, anybody who lives here, don't have to tell them what the housing costs are, disproportionately running 50% of their income. Um, So folks aren't making ends meet. An interesting statistic that I read that came out of a a major study at Georgetown University, that in the United States, over half the jobs, 50% of the jobs pay $34,000 a year or less. $34,000 in New York City. I mean, for a family of four, you cannot make family of four. No. Um, And so all those issues, and these are folks who are working, scrambling together a couple of jobs. These are your waiters, your waitresses, the -hmm. folks driving car service for you. Um, the folks delivering your food, um, the folks uh, doing uh, construction work, um, mm-hmm. particularly non-union construction work. Working, like. basically. Yes, they are. And now, how do you define poverty? I mean, uh, is it uh, from a food perspective? Fo- I mean, For a food perspective, define poverty slash hunger. Um, there, there's um, people who are food insecure, which means in the course of the month, they will have two or three times where they do not know where their next meal is coming from, mm-hmm. versus p- people who suffer from hunger who will miss it, at least weekly one meal. They will not have a meal for the entire day, hmm. which is scandalous in our country. The, still the largest food producing nation in the world. And now, is a, now, a meal a day, like does a slice of pizza count as a meal? I mean, how is this distinguished by calories it's, or by... I mean, it... When you get down to the USD, yes, it is. It's uh, and I forget the number. I think where it's like twenty two hundred for a male calories about that. That they're not able to get the proper caloric intake. Mm-hmm. Well, very interesting. Now, uh, so I mean, what I there's always a sense of empowerment that comes from my conversations with you. One is I learned that these people are working. They're not part of um, yeah. Mitt Romney's famous forty seven percent of the people siphoning off everything. Right. Um, you know, they are getting the best food in the country because, mm-hmm. you know, why wouldn't they? You know, to say that a, yeah. uh, a poor person wouldn't understand or doesn't deserve, you know, the best food, you know, or to say, uh, oh, well, that turkey, yes, sure, it's a free-range heritage turkey, mm-hmm. but that has nothing to do with that guy. I'm like, well, if it has something to do with the restaurant, why wouldn't it with them? Um, but also with um, choice, Mm-hmm. I mean, you have put a lot of energy since you've been executive director of Bread and Life since 2005 towards choice for your right. clients. It's it's very important for us to give choice. First of all, the rest of us have choice in terms of yeah. our food. Um, and, and, and as you talk about the, the best food, and, and the listeners should know, the best food's not always the most expensive food. It's really the food that brings the, both the nutritional and kind of the affective gastronomical to your family because if food doesn't taste good, nobody eats it, mm-hmm. regardless. Um, we put in, in 2008, we put in at what we call a digital choice food pantry, mm-hmm. um, which allows people to order based on the food groups, 
um, the food for their family and a point system. Uh, larger families get more points. Smaller families get less. And certain foods get more or worth more points. Basically, more nutritious is cheaper. Mm-hmm. Less nutritious is more expensive. It's sort of the whole foods thing upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, not to disparage whole foods, but just to give just to give it an analogy. Um, and people choose that. And it's interesting. When we opened our building, in our new building in 2008, it was right when the market crashed, when the bottom fell out of everything. We had that year a seven or 80% increase in the amount of folks coming to see us. 80%? 80%. It was like scary. Luckily, we'd got the building done just in time. We, and we had implemented this digital food pantry. Through the digital food pantry, we only had a 67% increase in the amount of food we gave out. Because we realized prior to that, without choice, we were giving people pre-made bags of groceries they were getting food that they weren't using or they didn't want Mm. Um, and to allow people with choice we now have the capacity to um, if you have hypertension you can see the low salt food Mm. Um, if you are Jewish you can see the kosher food or whatever we can ascribe whatever subgroups we want Um, and now with our new software which is web based we can also target it to place it in communities short term where there's hunger needs put it there for as long as necessary Mm -hmm. and then move it out the other thing I'd like to add with that, um, because I see this as an issue that can be solved, I don't see it as the 47% that we should just sort of, well, we can't do anything about them, so they're not going to pay me any mind. They're not going to join a political fundraiser. Mm-hmm. We'll just ignore them. I believe this problem can be addressed and be reduced. Um, and so by collecting the data, seeing the movement, how people use food, seeing the movement to our other services, we can find the points of impact to better use the money we receive from mm. our donors. Oh, 100%. Well, uh, it's so interesting. I mean, yeah, every, uh, I could go off on a, a thousand, a million tangents uh, with each of these uh, issues. Well, let's start to transition into a, part of, a big part of the reason you're here, which is the uh, 30 for 30. Uh, is that what it's 30 called? is enough. 30 is enough. Sorry, 30 for 30 is the ESPN documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, let's just bring in this issue of fundraising, and then we'll cut to a break and then really get into the 30 is enough. But you have quite a challenge. I mean, you're responsible as the executive director for securing $3 million a year. $3 million annually um, to serve about 24,000 folks and provide about 600,000 meals. Um, and it is um, – it's a lot of work. It's yeah. a lot of work. And as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, only about 9% yeah. of that is government funding. And that's called – HIPNAP funding? We do get a, a, a sizable, our largest government grant is from New York State called HIPNAP, Hunger Prevention Nutrition Assistance Program. And that money is targeted towards food mm-hmm. um, to provide um, emergency food throughout the state. It's approximately a $31 million program um, throughout the, the state. state. The whole state. And that state. sounds very low, but you said to me earlier that it's more than any other it's, state It's has. the largest amount given out to any state. And there's four. It's an interesting study that was just done in Harvard regarding that uh, state, uh, nationally among the 50 states. There are indicators of, of childhood malnutrition, which are um, uh, low weight, um, hypertension, diabetes, and cognitive uh, uh, slowness and cognitive development. There's these indicators. And New York State is the only state that's below the national average. Hmm. Um, and they weren't trying to quite point, but all of these, are, all of these issues are addressed. They're nutritional problems. They're hmm. nutritional deficits that create these problems. And it's interesting that the state that provides the most amount of money, and all this money goes directly to food. There's very little waste in it. There's very little administrative. And in our case, of the 231000 we get out of that, we're spending 175000 of that, plowing it right back into New York State farmers. Hmm, so the tax right. money's 
Which they should be very happy about. Now, how has that project worked, by the way? I mean, have you gotten good comments from uh, your constituents? We about have. We have. Taste better or that they, they appreciate that they're getting local foods? Uh, you know, I don't know if the local per se isn't like anyone in any restaurant. It's what it tastes like. Mm-hmm. Um, they like the idea of local. I think they like the idea of the farm trips. We've done a lot of those kind of things and meeting people. Um, and, and learning about it, but definitely the taste. And as, as, as I alluded to in, uh, earlier, people are experiencing healthier food that tastes better, and they can change some of their dietary patterns, and particularly our work with, with mothers of children who do a tremendous amount of training around, like all of us, trying to get our kids to eat vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been fairly successful of creating new recipes, and that really is from the food community. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, has that helped your fundraising? I mean, have the donors galvanized towards this kind of uh, project of yours, both choice and best foods? I think so. I think so. Um, they have. Um, they like the technology. They like the efficiency. They they like the kind of creativity. Um, and I think they like the notion of a community coming together to address a problem. A community of disparate. I mean, the cook, the food community is a rather disparate group and mm-hmm. a kind of funky group, if you will. You know, of, of, of very different personalities. Really, that group coming together, the foundation group coming together, the political world coming together, and kind of the high-end donors mm. coming together. Well, it's fascinating. So we're going to take a very short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about this disparate group, uh, restaurants in particular, who are coming to support the uh, 30 is Enough program, which is very, very interesting. So we'll be right back. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. 
optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Hey, if uh, people want local, uh, that is the localest prosciutto-style ham you can get. It's in Virginia, just a couple hundred miles away, and uh, you don't have to import it from uh, Italy or Spain. Anyway, uh, we are honored to have Tony Butler, the executive director of Bread and Life, in studio with us, and you've just launched a uh, big project called 30 is Enough. Why did you pick that name, and what is the project? Our project 30 is Enough comes from the reality that most emergency food providers um, in the country, and particularly here in New York State, are 30 years old. Um, In 1980, between 81 and 82, um, the Reagan administration had significant cuts in emergency food, um, just to give kind of a, a simple illustration. In 1980, 81, in New York City, there were approximately 16 soup kitchens. Um, they provided food and assistance to folks, those really down and out homeless. They were on the Bowery, the kind of classic Bowery bums. By 1983, 1982, 1983, and 84, there were 1,600 in the city. Uh, now statewide, there's over 3,000. Um, because that safety net, we almost had hunger beat in the late 70s. Um, through food stamps. Through what was hunger then? It was like 8%? Less than 8%. I think it was running around 65 or so at, at that time. Um, and that could be addressed. And that was just strictly um, folks who couldn't navigate the system and get in. It's the same as sort of the same analogy that really our unemployment, if it's at 3%, we're fully employed because 3% of the population can't work because of um, certain disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided... I decided to launch this campaign, 30 is Enough. It's 30isenough.org. Um, mm-hmm. Folks can find it on the website. And it's part of what we've been alluding to in the earlier conversation of, of bringing this restaurant community in uh, to assist us. No, it seems like a very opposite end of the food spectrum. The hungry and the gastronomes. I mean, it's the highest and the lowest. I mean, not, um, you know what I mean? Economic, by high yeah, and yeah. Uh, highest and lowest in terms of means and And, and, and fi- knowledge on how to cook the foods, I mean, which, by the way, we didn't cover. But so, I mean, what is this uh, connection uh, between restaurants and emergency food? I mean, it's an interesting one. Um, I think... I think one of the things restaurants have gotten, at least, and particularly here in Brooklyn and particularly here in New York City, um, I've had multiple conversations, and frequently in those conversations, um, the idea comes up that restaurants, as we're sitting in a wonderful restaurant here, provide wonderful food to people with means, really respond to that need. Um, hungry is hungry, um, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, depending, um, regardless of your, of, your, of your economic stance. Everyone's hungry. Um, but as restaurants provide... Uh, nutrition and food and, and, and reduction of hunger to people of means, I asked, don't you have a response and a responsibility to meet those needs of people without means? Mm-hmm. Um, and happily, a lot of them said, yes, <laughs> we do see that. We are here to respond to hunger. They it's, got it right away. Because, yeah. I mean, everyone gets hungry mm-hmm. and different means. So they understood that they have to kind of throw a little back for their yeah. homies in a way. Right. So what is the project? What the project is, is on November 7th and 8th, um, we will have, right now we have 31, we're hoping to have approximately 50 restaurants. On on November 7th and 8th, anyone who dines at these restaurants, and the names can be found at our website, 30isenough.org, that's 30isenough.org, up to 10% of that evening's tab, if you were to take, will be donated back to St. John's Bread and Life to provide emergency food. 
Fantastic. So uh, they're going to just keep. I mean, let's get a just to contextualize it. Give us the names of some. Oh, of we've these got four. we've got uh, we've uh, we have Brooklyn Bowl helping us out. Buttermilk Channel. The meatball shop, which I was just at the other day, was delicious. By the way, that is the cheapest food in the world. Everyone's like, how can food cost less? I'm like, the Italians. You make a meatball pasta that costs like a buck fifty. It's amazing anyway. stuff. It's amazing meatball. stuff. Great performances is helping us out. Northern. What is that? Is that a uh, is that BAM? I, well, it's really their catering. Yes, they're giving us a piece of their catering. They're doing stuff over at BAM for us. Hmm. Um, we're doing Northern Northern Spy Food Company. Great. Uh, Barkovo, who I think you were at just. Yeah, Ana Aldila, the, the nicest chef in the history of food. Patrick thought he invited me to that dinner, but he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, she is very, very sweet. Wow, so you have quite a list here yeah. in 31 restaurants. Yeah, and like I said, hoping to get to 50 um, and um, hoping to make it an annual event. Um, but just another part of that to, to really, we should be able to address here in Brooklyn and New York City, which has the best restaurants in the world. Um, um, Brooklyn, you know, which was just rated as the coolest ha- mm-hmm. happiness, happiness. And now, what do they get in return? I mean, other than feeling good about it, do you put effort to promote them? I mean, we'll of course list all these restaurants on our website, but other than that, a tremendous effort to promote them. Uh, we had a, a wonderful article in the Gothamist. If folks would would look at that. Um, the mentions in the Huffington Post, doing with all our own Twitter. We've ha- um, had about a hundred Twitter hits um, over the last day and a half, um, just just around this, and really to promote them. Um, but what's been amazing is these restaurants obviously want to be promoted. I mean, that's all restaurants. That's <laughs> want to be promoted. Why they are in business. But the sense that the sense that they also want to do the right thing. Um, mm-hmm. That it's not been a big explanation and arm twisting, but that, that the restaurants recognize that they need to do the right thing. Because they're part of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They're part of the neighborhood. Um, and it does take a communal response to address this issue of hunger in our community. Now, are you going to tap into some of these chefs to actually empower your clients to cook the food better or extend the life of food or feed more people? Because, I mean, when a, someone gets a, a package of kale, like there's many things you could do with it. And, of course, chefs at these restaurants are the best in the world at dealing with foods like that. So is there a connection there? Very much so. We've already started that. We've, we've created a chef's council. Um, with chefs on, and that is really part of their charge because it's, it's it's the classic um, um, of, of donating kind of time, talent, and treasure. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the the chefs are donating their donating their talent. We have at Bread and Life one of the things we have is a demonstration kitchen um, that allows us to prepare meals, show folks how to put them together, um, put together kind of economically, put them together with the best. Uh, spices and, and and things like that, mm-hmm. um, and it's very empowering to to people because there's, it's it's really kind of I don't know what the word would be. It's not racist. It's classist. It's something to think that poor people don't want good food and can't cook good food and can't understand spices, even if their own kind of gastronomical experience has been limited. Mm-hmm. Um, like all of us, we probably grew up with. Uh, God bless my mother, but her <laughs> cooking was rather limited. I did not learn this stuff till much later in life. Yes. and Well, uh, Jared Diamond uh, wrote uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. <laughs> and, I mean, one of the central premises of his book is the second you introduced a cow to Australia, man, they figured it out. <laughs> they were they were making milk and they were making cheese. Yep. It's just like, you know, what what environment do you start off with? Yeah. Which is, of course, this big thing between, you know, uh, blue states and red states is, you know, not everyone starts off on the same footing. 
but once given access to information, mm-hmm. everybody deals with it in a similar way, right. or everyone profits from it. Well, very, very interesting. So now, why 10%? This, uh, does this go back to biblical times or there, something? There is a biblical reference. The whole idea, uh, whole idea of tithing, anyone comes out of a, uh, a particular Judeo-Christian history, that the Bible is full of tithing, which was one-tenth. If you were a farmer, you gave one-tenth of your grain. If you were into animal husbandry, uh, you, you read about it in the book of Genesis, you're obligated to give one-tenth of the, of the slaughtered lamb mm-hmm. um, and the whole notion. So that notion stayed, that notion of 10%. I mean, it's still it's still a current notion. I mean, even one of the uh, Mitt Romney presidential candidate does tie ten percent of his money to his church. There's there's, it's a it's a very it, it runs it can run across the spectrum, if you will, of economic. If uh, only means. they had written twenty percent back. Then, I know there might be less hunger. I know. So now, is there? Can you generalize which? Uh, socioeconomic level gives the most between rich, poor, and uh, middle class? There, um, there is, um, and I don't want to quote the statistics erroneously because I left the papers home, but there's a greater sense that the lower middle class uh, um, people under $75,000, we'll call it that because the middle class gets defined all over the place, but folks under making under $75,000 give, um, on average, about 14% of their income. As a group, where folks above two hundred fifty thousand dollars give about three percent of their income. Now, yeah, you have to equate that because obviously, folks of tremendous means give, and we have. I have some wealthy donors um, who are really amazing in terms of what they give, and in terms of both the kind of quantity that they give, in terms of the access they give, um, and and it may be that um, from a, a Christian perspective, the, the great biblical quote that it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than a camel to go through the eye of the needle, that some rich folks have gotten that they want to work and make that needle's eye a little bigger. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so. <clears throat> but essentially, if you come from a place of need, you understand you need. You do, you do, you do. Now, you came from... Uh I mean, that was no small feat to feed your family. No, I mean, you were one of se- six or nine. I'm the one oldest. Of, I'm the oldest of nine. Wow, That's, oldest of yeah, nine. So, um, and it was. You know, my father worked two jobs. My mother worked part time as a nurse, and I changed diapers and learned to cook from a very early age. And uh, do you have weight on your shoulders to feed to help people because I, you were kind of like next? I've always, us? I've always wondered that if I, you know, as the oldest and being kind of a forever responsible i do um i do do that you know um and i probably i do like it i i'm a person who's been able to kind of figure out systems and take charge and understand people yeah and how to get things yeah. out of them be it a, a chef in the kitchen who has to cook for a thousand people exactly. coming in or um yeah that is uh performance studies yeah. i went to graduate school <laughs> for that it's a, everything's a script and certain people need some things yeah now um i mean we have a few minutes left I, i've got to ask about the elections and uh you know i wanted just to see um what our two opportunities with uh, romney and obama what that play, how that plays out for you, the, the decision that Americans make. Uh, they're difficult decisions. I mean, one of the discouraging things on both sides is neither side has talked about two things I personally value most. One is how do we deal with poverty in this country, which at 49 to 50 million in New York City, uh, just to give you an example, one in five folks use emergency food in New York City. One in five. It's 1.8 million, Pat. That's like the size of a major city, like it's, Philadelphia. It's exactly the size of Philadelphia. Imagine if all of Philadelphia couldn't get enough food. Um, and those, none of those conversations have really happened in this political discussion. Yeah, you could fit a Philadelphia and New York City of four people. That's <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. So just, just to kind of give a visual image to that. So it hasn't happened. 
Um, I mean, there are the disparaging comments of the, of the 47%, which I think is indicative. Um, and so, um, and it's, it's hard to balance, and part of my job is not to lobby, mm-hmm. um, but, but speak, that, that folks need to look at what is the most important. And I think what is the most important in our country is that we do need to provide a safety net. That doesn't mean poor people are lazy. That doesn't mean we just give to somebody and they're not working. That means that all, some of us have had more advantages than others. Some of us have had more barriers than others. And take New York City for an example. Um, we were talking earlier, and my apologies to the people of Detroit, but compare New York City to Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, New York City, even in its poorest communities, are vigorous communities. And particularly now, most communities in New York City, people can walk in and be in. They're safe communities. That is because of a safety net. Um, and these are people who strive to move out of these communities. Historically, poor communities, uh, the, the beauty of our country is people could move up this kind of socioeconomic ladder mm. um, and, and move out of these communities or make these communities better. And so I think the political discussion and the political choices have to be made on who provides that the most, not who provides simply for me, not who provides, gives me an extra $10 in tax breaks, which mm-hmm. really in the scheme of things doesn't mean anything because this whole tax argument is silly because when the feds cut my taxes the state raises my taxes so right 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 <laughs> you, you don't really see, i always ask what does that amount really come to and you know it's i read a great thing i forget where it was i think it was in the new yorker but you have to put on your big boy pants and pay taxes part of my obligation is to pay taxes as a working man bigger what's the Camus quote it's investing in the future yeah, the, or um, uh, something like that uh, Camus has a great quote let me see if i can call it to mind um, uh, it is that real generosity toward the future lies in giving all to the present. And as we have been, we are blessed and build on the shoulders of, of folks. We talk about the American exceptionalism. Well, we didn't create the American exceptionalism. We, we were building on the shoulders of great men and women prior to us. We have that obligation to provide for the future. Right. And a lot of these people, last time you were on, just said, I mean, they're simply people who worked, who were successful, and then something goes wrong, yes. they get fired, a division of the company closes. I could share the anecdotes I shared a couple months ago. I'm at a trade show um, on food. One of the fun perks, I get to wander around the Javits Center and see all the cool stuff and sample free sake and things like that. It's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, I have a buyer tag on, which always makes me nervous because you sort of get assaulted by the vendors. You know, they're all coming at you. And uh, one guy comes up to me. I'm going, well, what's this next pitch? And he's a software. It's a software for kind of an online ordering for a restaurant. And he goes, I want to thank you. I said, excuse me? And he says, I want to thank you. I said, oh, for what? And he says, well, you helped me out. I was in your food pantry for four months after my unemployment benefits ran out. Hmm. I had a young child, we still do, and my wife, and we were just not making ends meet. Hmm. And he goes, I came to it. He goes, it was very dignified. I ordered off the touch screen. I, I wasn't embarrassed. He goes, I was very embarrassed to show up, but I didn't feel ashamed when I left. Mm-hmm. And it got him through those four or five months. And he found a job with a, he was a software developer. And it was very humbling, hmm. um, uh, particularly for someone who looked like, looks like me, um, about my age. You know, it's somewhat there for the grace of God, go I. Mm-hmm. Um, and For folks, sure. folks need to know that this this affects all of us. So, uh, what have been the best policies ever implemented? I mean, government policies or state policies. What what are one uh, policies that you think should be duplicated? Food stamps are probably the best because what food stamps do um, is really take money. We subsidize. I don't need to tell you this. We subsidize the, the kind of farm ecosystem all over the place. 
um, to prevent farmers from failing due to crop fluctuations, due to droughts, due to all those kind of things. That money that's used is really placed into food stamps so folks can buy food. Mm-hmm. Food stamps are very effective. Um, and local municipalities lose money. Two years ago, New York City lost almost a um, billion dollars in folks who were eligible for food stamps and didn't apply. And that's money that comes into the local community, spent at the farmer's markets, spent at the local bodega, spent in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also uh, without um, – it has very little waste. There's obviously fraud, but um, I think we get kind of caught up with fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, Which you know, is uh, probably still a small percentage well, compared I, you to you know, the I just I just want to you know, look at like the fraud of like um, – um, you know, uh, you know, Goldman or say Barclays got caught out there. I can pay billions of dollars in fines. Yeah, I think that's a little different than ten dollars in food stamps. But it's the same percentage, probably. Yeah, the bad it, people out there. There's, just but yeah, like, yeah, bad, uh, sin and badness and greed. No, the whole they don't. Or they do know the whole economic ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and folks get caught up with that. That the, you know, those few people who are abusing something as as a pro, as opposed to a program mm-hmm. that works very well. For sure. No, I mean, yeah, the people focus in on the, on the 1% to, to not uh, appreciate the rest. Now, what is the worst policies or cuts? I mean, do you all attribute it to, did it all begin in the Reagan era? I mean, uh, The food stuff did. Um, I mean, uh, the cuts um, to mothers with dependent children. Right now, you only have, of all the um, children eligible for public assistance, any kind of public assistance, TANF and welfare, mm-hmm. only 28% are re- receiving it. So you have 72% of folks in poverty who are not receiving any benefits. We've really cut that that huge safety net. And obviously, safety net had to be reworked. Um, but I think one of the biggest policies, and no, I mean, they're trying to, they're talking about addressing it, is we do not have good jobs in this country. We've not figured out the way to do it. Because jobs are really the way to get out of poverty. It's mm-hmm. the only system we have. Um, it's interesting that Two of the countries with the highest taxation and the highest unionized workforce, which are, para- which are France and Germany, have one of the highest standards of living and the lowest unemployment mm-hmm. and the highest um, kind of industrialized countries in the world. Yeah. Um, so we have to stop kind of putting the burden on the worker. Right. Well, Michael Pollan was on my show and he was like, people need to get paid more. They do. Yeah. Then that would answer a lot of, uh, of these questions. Because it's, it's simple in some respects. You know, it's more tax money and, and the whole bit. Um, uh, but until we until and I um, readers may or the listeners may have heard, I do come out of a bit of a religious background. It's kind of my, my world. Um, one of the problems in this country is it's a Calvinist nation. We were founded by the, the, the Puritans. And Calvin believed that sin and poverty were equated, that you were poor because you were sinful. And I think that still permeates what we do, hmm. that poor people, they've done something bad. Um, hmm. Very so, interesting, yeah. very interesting. Well, 30 is enough. Uh, tell us how people can donate to Bread and Life and how people can go support the restaurant supporting 30 is enough. Well, first, if, if folks want to find out more about Bread and Life, to donate, to see all the, the amazing services, to ask questions, Go to breadandlife.org. That's B-R-E-A-D-A-N-D, life.org. Bread and, spe- and life. Yeah, and spelled out, the A-N-D. To find out more about 30 is Enough, which is very easy to participate, eat at these restaurants. That's yeah, all that's you got to do. That's all you got to do. Um, 
eat and drink at these restaurants, go to 30isenough.org. That's 30isenough.org. We're also going to ask poor Joe to list all uh, 31 existing restaurants yep. onto the tag cloud for us. Um, but um, now that it exists, now that there's 31s participating, I guarantee you Aaron and I and Heritage are going to drive people to these restaurants and get us get you guys to 50 restaurants so uh you know you really do do god's work and um we're big fans and i know we've signed a memorandum of understanding network with bread and life so more power to you and uh, god bless and um thanks for all that you do it's a very very important well thank you it's great working with you we already meet like three years ago or so yeah (laughs) and it's the rest is history now uh soon hopefully you'll have your own show here which should uh be really really fantastic and i see we even have your lovely hipster hat on already my daughter saw my pictures of me when i was like in my 20s she said dad you were a hipster before there were hipsters (laughs) those Pants were tighter than any I've ever seen. Well, um, it is a... uh, Well, next week, we're going to have Jacques uh, from Palo Santo on and a couple of other chefs. Uh, We have... Joe, what is the schedule for the rest of the day? You have an unbelievable Sunday now. You have Straight No Chaser, right? Yep, followed by the Mike and Judy show. Right, followed by... The Morning After, now with Jesse Kiefer hosting. That show is great, yeah. And then uh, Burning Down the House with Curtis B. Wayne. The only architecture show uh, in all the media wave. So it's been a great show. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned, and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.